Matthew chapter 5. We're going to continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount, looking today at what naturally flows out of the Beatitudes. We spent three weeks kind of on the appetizer, if you will, of the sermon, and then today we're going to begin to get into the meat of the sermon. And while I was researching and studying and thinking about today's message, um, an old song introduction came to mind. Uh, I, growing up, I was a big fan of a contemporary Christian music group called DC Talk. All right, I mean, you got any DC Talk fans in the house? All right, uh, they they're no longer together, although they somehow united reunited for a cruise um, to sing on a cruise a couple of years ago. But I was a big DC Talk fan. I could quote lots of their their song lyrics and listen to them a lot. And when I was in college, kind of one of their most important albums came out. Some people consider it one of the most important albums of contemporary Christian music. It was called Jesus Freak. And on that Jesus Freak album was a song called What If I Stumble. It was about this idea that what happens if I stumble, what are the ramifications for those around me? And at the beginning of that song, they had um, a quote from a man named Brennan Manning, who has written a lot about Christians in society. And they quoted this, and this is what they said. And I remember the first time hearing this, it just blew me away. And each time I read it, it is a convicting thought. It says, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. As I heard that quote on that record, and as if I read it today, my first thought is that can't be right. Can't be right. That's not right. And then as I begin to examine my life, I ask the question: Do I follow what God's called me to do? Am I a follower of Jesus Christ in the most basic sense of that word? And so I thought about that this week as we are moving into the meat of the sermon, into a into the Sermon on the Mount, into a place where you all probably know this, you've heard these verses, maybe you could quote the verses that we're going to talk about today, and that's going to be true through a lot of this this series. And I'm not here today to give you some brand new reinterpretation of these verses. Because I think they're pretty straightforward. But my prayer is today is that we collectively will be reminded of what these verses mean for us in our situation. Today we're going to talk about the verses that talk about us being salt and being light. And what that looks like in our society, what that is about. And these verses flow naturally out of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, those blessings, are the character traits of our lives. They are the things that we ought to exhibit. If we are following Christ, they are who we ought to be. It's been an interesting juxtaposition for me as we've been speaking on Saturday night about the fruit of the Spirit and walking through those fruits. And as we think through what it means to be a follower of Christ in Galatians, they match up significantly with what it means as Jesus talks about the Beatitudes. And there are many that think that Jesus' teaching on the Beatitudes greatly informed Paul's writing on the fruit of the Spirit. We think about those Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the merciful, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are you when you're persecuted, blessed are the peacemakers. 
those character traits, all of those are kind of inward transformations. They are things that happen inside of us as we come into an understanding of who we are before God and what God has done for us and how we live that out. And then you get to these verses, and it's now here's how you move outwardly. The inward change from the character traits described that comes from knowing Christ, allow us to be the salt and light in our communities, in our nation, and in our world. Martin Lloyd-Jones said about this particular passage, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world stops to hear the message. What we're going to talk about today is how we ought to be different from the world because there are times when the church is different from the world and it is not a good thing. When we proclaim our difference in ways and attitudes and and actions that don't depict what God has called us to do. One of the things that we have to remember is there's an important eternal truth contained in these simple four verses that We often, those of us who follow the King, those of us that are followers of King Jesus, that are believers in Him, that call ourselves Christians, that when we live our lives properly as God has called us to be, we will be the only real salt the world tastes and the only real light that it will ever see. We are the representatives of Christ. Paul says that we are Christ's ambassadors. We are the ones that represent him in a foreign land, if you will, in a hostile territory. We are his representatives. When we think about salt and we think about light, we realize that we live in a decadent, decaying, dark world that is in desperate need of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we shake our heads in agreement with that, what we must come to understand is that if the world is going to experience the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it comes through His believers. It comes through us. He's not going to sky write it in the sky. He's not going to send everyone a personal letter in their mailbox. He has determined that the plan A for the gospel of Jesus Christ to spread throughout the entire earth is you and me. So let's look at the text. Starting in chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Now, even before we get to things to point out about the you and the are, The you there in the original language is in the emphatic place. It is an emphasized word. And it means literally, you hear the word salt, what do you think of? What's the first thing you think of when you hear salt? Flavor? High blood pressure? Like, what do you think of? Drift in our standards towards things that are lower in standard than better. I'm just talking about the world in general. And I'm not here to decry the whole world, okay? But I just see, just in my personal experience, this is anecdotal. I don't have any research on this. I do have some research on another thing I'll talk about in a minute. But but I don't have any research on this. It just seems to me, for instance, when I am out and about in public, the language that I hear these days is so much more crass than what I used to. In places of business, 
just talking, walking. I was in Publix the other day, and I thought that conversation I just passed would have been R-rated. In Publix, I was just trying to pick out some bread. All right? I do know that when you look at entertainment, the number of scenes of violence, of foul language, and of scenes of sexual nature have increased exponentially in the last 15 to 20 years. And as believers, we are called to be an example of what God has for people. And one of the things that God is, is holy, is perfect, is pure. We have to ask ourselves the question. First of all, we have to ask our question, what are societal standards that aren't biblical standards that are out there? Because sometimes society sets standards that aren't biblical standards. But when we find a biblical standard that is of purity and of righteousness, we have to say, how can we model that to the world as a demonstration of what God would desire? Immediately you begin to talk about that. People start going, wait, you're talking about legalism? A list? No. There is grace in all things. But here's what I want to tell you. When we're talking about how we influence the world around us, it tells us, you know, I think back to Paul's standard about eating meat sacrificed to idols. He said someone may see you eating meat sacrificed to idols and think it's perfectly okay to do that. And for them, it is something that is detrimental to their spiritual health. And so as in everything in our lives, we have to ask the question, Where does my freedom in Christ bump up against my responsibility to portray Christ to the world? Purification. The second reason that I think he uses the word salt is because it was used as a preservative. It's a little different. They they have similar kind of ideas, but a little different. Back in that day, salt was used a lot to keep things from spoiling. Meat to stop or slow decay. That it was without refrigeration. You couldn't go and stick it in the freezer. You couldn't go stick it in the refrigerator. And so you had to figure out a way to keep meat particularly from spoiling. Meat was such a precious commodity to them that if they had it, most people didn't have meat on a regular basis, but if they had it, then they wanted to make sure that it did not go bad. I was, uh, Susan and I were watching a show um, over the last couple of days about a a group of people that are trying to win a house in Alaska. And they're from the United Kingdom. And so they have been mostly city folks. And they're trying to win a house to live in for the rest of their lives in Alaska. And one of the things they took them on was buffalo hunting. And they shot the buffalo there. And then they gave them a very, they showed it, of how to skin and clean it. And describe to them if they did not get everything done within two hours, then the meat would start to go bad. But if you did it right and preserved it, that the meat from that buffalo could feed two people for a year. And so that's a major difference between not doing it right and doing it right. And salt was one of the major preservatives. I, I had a teacher in high school, I remember in geography class, and and I, you know, I, don't, I haven't seen this research in other places, but he was talking about it and he said that one of the things that you'll notice is that the closer you get to the equator in general, the spicier the food is. And he said part of that is because when you're in Canada in December, you stick the meat 
out in the snow. And it preserves. When you're at the equator, there ain't no snow. Year-round. So you have to figure out ways to preserve it. So you salt and spices and other things. And so it was a preservative. One historian around the time of Jesus said that salt acts like a new soul in meat. Meat is dead and will go bad if left to itself. And salt is like a new soul inserted that keeps it fresh. It stops the decay or corruption. So part of our job as the salt of the earth is not only to be the ones that show purification and how God intends life to be lived, but also to help to to stop or, or to slow the decay that comes from a sinful humanity. And here's the third element, the one that I like the most. It's for flavor, right? It enhances and brings flavor out of whatever it is that you are eating. And here's one of the things that is meant here, I believe, because in a moment we're going to talk about the warning that comes from this. We're actually going to go to the light first. But in the morning it talks about if a salt loses its taste, there is this understanding that the taste of salt does something to enhance and bring flavor to anything you eat. I love the message paraphrase of this particular verse. It says, let me tell you why you are here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. We are to be the people that bring the flavors of God, the excitement of God, the joy of God, the happiness of God to the world in which we live. Which is depressing when you think that one of the three main words people use to describe Christians when they're asked, non-Christians is, they're describes us as boring. There are a lot of things Christians can be. Boring should not be one of them. We have been made alive by the Savior of the world who gave His life for us. A God who creatively created all that we see by the words of His mouth. He is full of joy. It tells us in Zephaniah, He dances around singing over us. There are multiple places in Scripture where we see God as an active energetic, joyful God, and His followers ought to be the same. We bring the life out of it. This week I read the illustration of this man. I think we got a picture, right, Josh, of this man. Does anybody know who this guy is? This is Eric Liddell. Alright? Now he's most famously known as the runner in a movie that won an Oscar. And I would hum the tune for you, but I don't do that well, right? It's chariots of fire, right? He's famous because he's an Olympic athlete, and he famously would not run on Sundays. He said that contradicted his faith and that he was made to be a follower of Christ and not an Olympic athlete. So he ran because he felt like that's what God gave him. But what many people don't know or don't remember about Eric Liddell is that after his athletic career, he moved to China as a missionary. And while he was in China as a missionary, World War II broke out, and the Japanese not only fought us, they moved into Chinese territory as well, and the place where he served as a missionary 
during World War II was captured by the Japanese and turned into a prisoner of war camp. And Eric Liddell was a prisoner of war in World War II. He actually died as a prisoner of war in World War II. But one of the people that survived said that the main reason that the most people that survived that area survived was because of him. This is what he said about Eric Liddell. He said he unreservedly committed his life to Jesus Christ as Savior and a Lord. By the flickering light of a peanut oil lamp, he studied the Word and talked to God for an hour every morning. He desperately wanted to know God more, and he desperately wanted to make God known more to the people around him. And he glorified God in both life and death. And this is what he said. By the way he lived and the joy he displayed, he made a difference for many in the camp who would not have survived without his example. That's what it means to bring the God flavoring out of life. The second thing that Jesus says is not only are you the salt of the earth, he also says we are the light of the world. There's a strong Old Testament background to this. In the Old Testament, light is paired with revelation and instruction and hope and joy and righteousness and protection and direction and salvation and the presence of God in their midst. And in this particular case, when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, I think he really means, again, three big picture ideas. First of all, that as light, we should dispel darkness. I think about the fact that we live in a world that is under attack spiritually from evil and dark forces. And in Scripture, it is often depicted as a war between the light and the darkness. And that when light comes into a room, darkness is dispelled. Secondly, that light was often used or referred to as a guide for our path. I think about the psalmist who says, that the word of God is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That as you're walking in complete darkness, that you must have something that lights your way. And then finally, it's used as an unveiler of truth. That light, as it dispels darkness, as it guides our path, it also reveals what is actually truth. I think about getting up in the middle of the night when it's completely dark in our house and walking through it and, and it feels like things are closing in on you and you can't figure out what's there until you turn the light on. Now, I don't do that like in the bedroom and wake everybody else up, but when you turn the light on, it's like, oh, look, that's my, that's my shoe on the floor, right? It dispels darkness and guides our way and unveils the truth. And as believers, that's who we are to be to this world. That we are to be lights that dispel the darkness around us through the power of God. We are to guide people towards the truth of who it is and then unveil the reality of who our God is. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now with each of these, he gives a warning. And we're going to go back and read the whole passage and put them all together and talk about this warning. Because I think it's a warning that speaks to the deeper issue of our soul than just the practical application of our lives. Verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. 
You are the light of the world, and a city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all of those who are in the house. Here's the warning he gives. He says, listen, if you're a believer, don't lose your saltiness. If you're a believer, don't hide your light. But I think there's something deeper going on here, because there were cases when you read about in the days of Jesus that people would gather salt and there would be impurities in it and it wouldn't be as high quality of salt. If you may not know this, but the actual salt compound is one of the most stable compounds on earth and will last for a very, very long time. But what they discovered is there were things that would have impurities in them. But as you dive deeper into an understanding, there was also this kind of rhetorical question out there that sometimes would say, like, you would ask a something that was impossible. I don't know what that would be. I don't know. But you ask something impossible. And somebody would say back as a rhetorical question, well, can salt lose its saltiness? And everybody would say, no. Salt is always salty. And so there are some that believe, and I understand tracking through Jesus and the way he explains it with the light is, what he's saying is, If you are a follower of mine, if you are a believer of mine, if you are someone that is truly my disciple, you will be salty. Now, maybe not in the way that we have been at times. But that you will be someone that stops decay, somebody that brings preservation, and somebody who brings the flavor of God to the world in which we live. That it's not an option, that it's not part of it, it's not like, well, I just got compromised. That if you are a true follower of Christ, your life will demonstrate it. Another way to think about it is the fruit of the Spirit. If you're a true follower of Christ, your life is going to show the fruit. It just will. In the same way with the light, he says, you can't hide a single hill. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have been saved by him, you cannot hide your light. So the reality is, in the midst of all of this, what we understand and determine is that we have a responsibility to do what God has called us to do. And then he gives us the purpose at the very end. says in verse 16, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Let your light shine so that they may see what you're doing, how you are different for good, and they will give glory to your Father in heaven. Where does your life point people towards? What direction does your life point people? Where does it send people? When they see your life, when they see the attitudes with which you live, when they see the actions that you take, when they hear the words that you say, when they see the posts and messages that you share, where does it direct them? The goal of my life, the desire of my life is that it would point people to the God who has saved me. That's what it means to be salt and light. As we think about that for our own selves, there are just really three implications from this passage, big picture implications. And the first one is this, that there is a fundamental difference between the world and believers. 
That fundamental difference is that we have been saved by the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ who now gives us the strength that we need to endure and to live. And because of the difference between the world and us, we have a responsibility as a second thing. You and I have a responsibility that we cannot escape and that if we do not do, no one will do. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. We are the representatives of Christ. We are his ambassadors. And so we need to embrace the two main functions that he gives us, which is to stop the decay of the world and to illuminate our God. I want to end by reading you the full interpretation of this from the message. The message is not a version that I use all the time for my study, but man, sometimes Eugene Peterson, who paraphrased the Bible, just puts it really well. And he says, let me tell you why you are here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. Amen? We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. And I love this part. Now that I've put you out there on the hilltop, now that I've saved you, now that I have saved your soul, now that I have made you whole, now that I have given you life eternal, and I've put you out on display... Shine. Shine. And then it ends. I love some practical things. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. Shine. Let's pray together.